Hello, Michael. How are you today? A little bit damp, Luke. It's raining there, is it? Well, yeah. It's. Uh, I'm glad you can't hear it. It's been. Uh, it's pretty been a pretty intense uh, period of rainfall, hasn't it? Really. Yeah, well, I'm up in Queensland, and it's, it's also uh, bucketing down here, as it feels like it has been doing now for about a month. So, this hopefully it can ease up soon. There's a lot of people having a tough time with all the floods going on, and looks like that might be coming to an end. But some pretty crazy scenes, hey? Like, did yeah. you see the, the footage? Obviously, you probably did being in New South Wales, but coming out of Manly and stuff. Like, geez, that's like could never ima- have imagined seeing that kind of stuff happening there. Insane. I, I, I did not see that, but I've been a bit uh, focused on, you know, my um, work getting uh, programs out for government and so forth at the moment, trying to get, try, you know, like trying to get people back into the city. So hopefully we can we can do that. What's going on there? Give us an update. Uh, so yeah, the year started. We've got a number of initiatives, um, none of which I can as yet give you details on because it's uh, still under wraps. But hopefully, we've got yeah, the government's continuing to invest in trying to uh, stimulate return to work, return to um, CBDs and urban centres. So we've got a, a, a program in government terms, which is a funding initiative that. Uh, opened up and uh, um, we hope to be able to announce a whole bunch of events and exciting things for Sydney uh, very shortly. Yeah, awesome. Uh, do you, I mean, this is, could be purely anecdotal, but I don't know, maybe you have data behind it. What, what are you seeing thus far? I was in, in terms of, I'll, I'll clarify my question, in terms of people getting back to the CBDs, I, I've been to Sydney twice in the last month, a week each time. Yeah. And the difference between those visits was pretty, like, this one was three weeks ago. I was also there last week for the week. And it felt pretty good the first trip, but it felt like almost normal last week in in some respects, sorry. But in the CBD, like right in the central business districts, it felt almost normal. Do you have any sort of perspective on that or are you seeing any data that's coming out that's suggesting... Sort of how how it's how the people are returning. Obviously, alleviating masks and things like that are you know key um, initiatives and uh, removal of restrictions generally are, are good signals. The weather's kind of probably playing a bit of an interruptive um, yeah, force at the moment, but um, hopefully that kind of also ameliorates. But but yeah, like I think that uh, if anything, you know, from an entertainment perspective, I think the city's kind of getting in Sydney anyway is getting better um, because there's some really good Good new new businesses on the market doing interesting things, uh, um, and and uh, yeah, like people have missed it. And you know, now that doesn't necessarily mean it from a capacity perspective. I like to think about things like a power plant, almost. You know, so what level of capacity are we at? Twenty percent, thirty percent, forty? Because you kind of want to get to sixty to seventy percent to be functioning efficiently. You know, think about all the uh, smaller, medium businesses. Uh, you know, all those incidental things uh, as opposed to just you know a few venues doing a great job. Um, but I think that, uh, uh, well, uh, remain upbeat and hopefully uh, with, uh, here's what I think as well. You've got things like Biennale of Sydney um, uh, opening um, in the next week. You've got, as I say, stuff that we're working on. And there's a whole bunch of brands and businesses who are just conferencing. You know, there's a whole bunch, everyone's going to try and get stuff done basically. And so that's, I think, going to create quite a bit of energy and excitement. And uh, yeah, I think we've just got to try and harness that and remind people why it's just a, a better place to to be really for fun um, you know so get 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 off the couch and, and, and get 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 into it yeah i think uh, obviously mardi gras being on last week is a good reason for people to get back into the to the cities as well it would be, that was probably contributing to the buzz our offices in surrey hills which um you know that's typically quite a focal point when when that event is on but um i feel like this might sound very silly but visitation drives visitation do you know what i mean like if you have one experience of the city I feel like it, it, it's a catalyst or, or a, um, a driver to, to, to kind of, I guess, generate repetition on that front. Like, and it actually felt really nice not having to wear a mask. And I tell you what, the best thing for me, this sounds really uh, minor, but being able to walk into a hospitality venue through any one of several doors as you, you know, it, it sounds really silly, I know, but like when I was able to do that, I walk into a pub and it's a pub that I would tend to go to when we're in Sydney because it's close to the office and we'll have team drinks and stuff, but you always had to go through this one door. And you always had to walk around the building past all these other entries and get to the one door that you're allowed to enter in, but I walked past and they had, you know, six or seven entries open and you can go through anyone you wanted and it just felt 
really normal again. So I think it's those small things that people... Yeah, it's, it's so true, isn't it? And I, it's a bit, how long does it take for you to uh, adjust to not grabbing for your phone or even... I was out with a, a group of people and it's. Uh, I had to remind people that they could stand up. I was like, oh, it's, you know, you can stand up. It's cool. Because <laughs> everyone's like sitting down. I'm like, uh, just, you know, we, we can, you know, let's get, yeah. So, yeah. And then even things like, as you say, venue hopping and things, uh, um, which I'm a massive fan of. They're, they're the, the things which are ideally um, we see. But and, and, you know, going back to some of the work, what's important is that what, what we want is uh, people to have a great experience and, you know, part of that's choice and part of that's flexibility, different types of price points, all of those things, you kind of build out the product uh, really quickly so that, you know, as many people has as good an experience of Sydney as, you know, um, as possible or any other city, I should add. And, you know, challenges like, uh, it's probably over-egging it, but, you know, surge charging for uh, on Uber and uh, taxi availability, all these things kind of, yeah, they, they can't, are they an impediment, are they not? Well, you know, I had an experience the other night where, I couldn't persuade a taxi driver to drop me off because it'd been booked via one service um, and my mate had booked it. I got out in the in the rain it, late at night and I just couldn't get a taxi and a 20-minute wait for, you know. So these are the kinds of sort of, they sound minor, but in my world, I'm like, how do we fix that? How do we fix that? How do we fix that? To try and make sure the overall experience is as good as possible for as many people as possible. Well, uh, mate, if anyone can do it, you, uh, you can do that, I am sure. Um, Anyway, let's get on to today's guest. He's a man very uh, close to my heart, a, a person I've always been quite fond of since the first time I met him, but it was your, I guess, suggestion to get him on. Do you want to talk through Scott? Yeah. Uh, for us in, in New South Wales, uh, particularly in the pandemic, the it's just been a, a great coming together of industry uh, and an information exchange and I'm very attuned to it because obviously the better quality information I get from the sector the better I can help government work out how to respond even if we end up not getting it always right at least we're getting the right information and form of the right people and you know that service of that aim uh, the Destination New South Wales um, CEO Steve Cox has been convening I think almost well, weekly and it sort of slipped to fortnightly when you know the, the, as needs be as things have been slightly better but uh, the every yeah, ritualistically getting everyone together and and virtually of course and and in that um, sense you know I kind of observe Scott it taking on I think a good leadership role like uh, for the community and 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 also a um, like an optimism um, lens if I can put it that way uh, and thinking about the opportunity that the pandemic has uh, created for us to be better as an industry and of course you know if you think about things like staff shortages which is you know de rigueur for all of us it's you know i'm interested in that kind of thing because being better as an industry is like maybe that becomes an attractor for talent you know and doing it in a coordinated way is potentially better than individual businesses trying to win talent or you know take talent you know it's going to happen but you know how do you increase the the pool as opposed to uh, all the pie so um just thought he's a, a good bloke i learned a lot from him talking to him so um i thought why not share some of those conversations yeah so scott boys is his full name he's vice president of operations for new south wales and act at a core hotel so from memory, he'll confirm this, but I think his, his patch of hotels is around, you know, 50 to 55 properties right across those um, two regions. And um, he's been in the organisation for a very long time and just widely respected across the entire uh, accommodation sector. So, uh, and just a lovely human being. So let's get him on and have a chat. Looking forward to it. Welcome to the Back of House podcast, Scott Boys, Vice President Operations at Accor and someone whose face has been on screen for many of the industry uh, in New South Wales, at least, I'm sure other places, a lot as uh, we've fought the pandemic. It's great to uh, have you on for a formal chat, Scott. What's your day been like today? It's been a, a wet, wet old week. So how's it affected you? Before we get on to today, Michael, I just want to say to you and Luke, I, I love your podcast. It's a must listen to. For anyone in the industry, and it's a great pleasure to be here. I've, I've been a long-time listener, first-time caller, and uh, it's a great <laughs> pleasure. So uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, today, I, I'm guessing people are going to be listening to the, this sometime in the future. And at the moment, we're in the grips of a rain bomb here in Sydney and floods up north and hearts and, and prayers go out to everyone affected by the floods. Today, really, it's just been taking stock of 
of where we're up to in terms of our workforce and who's affected and who's not and uh, how can we help. So that's been this morning and the sun has poked through the clouds now and I'm guessing that's a metaphor for what this afternoon will bring. So uh, excited to rip into Friday afternoon. Yeah, it's a continuation, I think, in some senses, isn't it? Prior to the pandemic, of course, we had the bushfires and uh, then into the pandemic and waves and we can, everyone knows the story there, don't need to over talk that. But this period here, which um, has some length to run based on the sort of forecast, even if the sun is poking through today. So hopefully we're, we see that off. But I, I guess the motivation to really get you on today is to, I think, sort of do a bit of a reflection on, you know, the, the industry through this period and what's uh, changes, you know, opportunities. And I guess like with this underlying question about can we be better on the other side of it and what, what, what's the opportunity that comes out of this? <laughs> but, but also how do you do that? That's the other side, the bit that I'm really curious to, to get your views on. I think listeners that just kind of appreciate your perspective and overview just in terms of that sort of two-year period. It's been a journey, hasn't it? Uh, I am... I am in awe and amazed that everyone is still standing. I, I think that's just um, incredibly impressive. I mean, when you think about the challenges that that have been laid uh, upon us and continue to be, and in a crazy, crazy world that we live in, the fact that everyone is still here and we're having a conversation now, talking about our great industry and about the future, is quite remarkable. We had a conversation with our general manager community two weeks ago, and we were talking about what you just said, Michael, around bushfires into COVID, into floods, into COVID, into floods, always around the Christmas time of the year, a time when you generally sort of sit back and reflect on the year that's gone and you set plans in place for the year ahead, both personally and professionally. And if I think about the accommodation sector particularly, uh, and particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, they've missed those three years of reflection and planning and resetting and going again so we do have to find time to be able to do that that's that's really important and understanding what the future could look like and being absolutely committed and motivated by what what we've all come through we've all thought something uh, and the view has got to be better at the end than what it was at the start that's that's the whole idea of fighting and we've all fought to be here so Providing that space now is really important to, to do that reset and to think about what the future should look like and, and how do you build a future that's better than what it was previously and then go, go about making it happen. The, the main reflection on the last two years, particularly of COVID, I think is there are things that you can control and there are things that you can't. Now, COVID has taught us really to roll with the punches, to move quick, to just keep stepping forward even though you don't know what tomorrow is going to bring it's taught us a huge degree of resilience where we're probably all experts now in having tough conversations that we we possibly didn't turn our minds to before we all know how to serve our teams we all know the importance of guests we all know the importance of a dollar my goodness so there are things that we absolutely can control but there were things that we can't the future i think is something we can control so <laughs> there are going to be hurdles and perils and pitfalls but absolutely dreaming up what the future can hold and really being able to see that and visualise that and then put plans in place for the future. I, I think that's the the power of reflection of COVID and using that in a positive way to, to build a better future. If I can drag up a distant memory now, and I don't, we're not, this isn't the world's most controversial podcast, but for every player, there's a perspective on matters. And I began lockout campaigning in 2016 or so. And and I came to the conclusion we needed to unite an industry that was being impacted by it across whether a small bar, a pub, a, a shop, nightclub, like it didn't really matter. You, everyone was being impacted. And this sort of led to the formation of, um, you, you know, the Nighttime Industries Association and, you know, led to this kind of new narrative around nighttime economy, my role and so forth. But I, at the time, tried to get the hotel sector on board and I really struggled. And I have, we've got a lot of allies in the industry and had some pretty honest chats. And there was a view put back to me, like where basically people were empathetic. They were like, well, when this thing happened, the hotel sector just thought this is not too bad for us because it means we'll get more F&B trade. So hence, in terms of taking an active position in getting rid of lockout, we, we didn't resist it because we thought we'd enjoy an upside. 
And I was like, oh, this is not what I was expecting. And then at AHIS, I did a speech on why the hotel sector should get out of bed for lockout, which uh, Mike Johnson then ran with. And and that, I guess, uh, triggered a whole series of consequences, I think, that and positive in a sense. But it makes me reflect on, you know, the, the collaboration discussion, because the, the word that we use in the pandemic is COVID. The other one we see is collaboration. And we see collaboration as a byproduct of it. And, and I think it's amazing. And you and I talk about this a bit, Scott, but... I guess how do you entrench that? If we are, if we worked out that it's better to go together now, how do we hang on to it? Yeah, that's uh, that's a really good question, and I've been in this game for a while. There's been two moments in time where I think the battle lines between competitors have just completely dissolved. It's been a, a citywide or a statewide or a countrywide approach to achieving an outcome. The first was the Sydney 2000 Olympics. I just thought that. The vibe in Sydney at that time was all about country pride. And at a point in time when we're hearing about the power of country pride, I think it's a constant reminder that there's something very tangible about that. And the Sydney 2000 Games just created this spirit of hospitality, whether you work for Hyatt, Hilton, Marriott, Ack, or a standalone operator, or you're all part of a greater purpose of welcoming the world to Sydney and being proud of running the best games ever, you know, and to hear one Antonio Samaran say Sydney is the best Olympics ever, we, we felt like that was mission accomplished as opposed to to driving company um, profits or um, company objectives. And, I, and, and ultimately, I think those objectives are achieved, by the way, and achieved at a much higher level if you achieve a greater good. So the Sydney 2000 Games was one example where I think we all worked together extremely well to achieve something super, super special. And and then through COVID, I think we did it again. You know, the the hotel quarantine program uh, has had its critics and fair share of negative attention. But what those hotels and hoteliers, and, and it wasn't only those hotels in the program, there was hotels hosting thousands of homeless people each night in Sydney and, and metropolitan Sydney and regional New South Wales. And I know that's the same around the country. There was hotels playing a role in hosting ADF personnel and healthcare workers and doctors and nurses that needed to isolate. Like the role the industry played in the pandemic response was just so amazing. And it was it was industry-led. It wasn't company-led, it was industry-led. And I think that reflecting on both of those examples now, surely there is something in coming together as an industry and creating a I don't I don't I don't know what it looks like yet, but but creating some kind of purpose beyond people staying in our individual hotels but driving tourism to a location or promoting tourism to a location or providing amenity or great food and beverage or a great service style or hungry to win the business in the first place as an industry and making a bigger pie we'll all get our slice so i I think the prize is big michael and if we can if we can achieve that this collaborative citywide, statewide, countrywide pride in the industry and proud of our story. And I think that that also links in then to our Indigenous story and bringing that to life. You know, we, we were talking about new markets that might come into, uh, into play post-COVID. And, and rather than, than adapting our service style to new markets, why don't we know what our service style is and, and be proud of that? Why don't we have our our stories all mapped out and be really proud of that? And why don't we give our Indigenous story a voice in our hotels and be proud of that? And we all do that because that's going to create this authentic Australian tourism product that we can all be really proud of and, and people will want to experience and then we'll all get our piece. So, yeah, I, I think you're onto something and I, I, I'm really committed to, to playing our role in in bringing our hotels into that conversation and and helping wherever I can to to further embed that, I think it's really important. It's a it's such an exciting insight there, and you know, for the record, like I've benefited from the industry being really united during this time, and you know, it, it's come together. And as I've said in numerous occasions, the the best thing that industry can do is is speak with one voice to government, as opposed to splintering, because it uh, it just helps with the what is a relatively tough decision making apparatus. It's well-intentioned, but uh, sometimes falls short, partly due to miscommunication. So it's been really exciting and I'm really keen to <laughs> keen to see it happen.
Touching on the building back better, I think Mike and I, we spoke about that on the last episode. It's something I'm personally, uh, I guess, quite passionate about in relation to using this as an opportunity to fix some of the um, the challenges that I guess maybe just in perception sometimes in execution within the greater sort of hospitality, mainly in the employment industry, to be honest. But I think one of the better ways you can do that, sorry, the, the employment aspect of hospitality as a sector, hospitality and tourism, one of the ways you can do that is to provide great examples of how people excel, I think, within the sector so that others can learn from that. And that was one of the reasons why we started this podcast in the first place. And without blowing too much smoke, um, I think historically Accor has been a business that I've I've referenced when speaking to other businesses in relation to how you build culture and how you build a team that, you know, I, I obviously spent a lot of time on LinkedIn and you can tell how passionate Accor team members are just by looking at the content that they're putting out of LinkedIn. And that was the case well before COVID ever came around. I think the, the amount of internal promotion that you had and, and that looked very organic, I don't think it was forced around things like Hardest and what it means to be a member of a core is, um, was, was really inspirational. And I know through our engagement with the business, through yourself and other members, that, um, that it's, it's genuine. It's not a branding exercise and it's not marketing. I guess my question is... And this is, again, with the intent of having other people perhaps inspired or be able to learn from it. But how do you create that internally? Where does it come from? And I guess, are there any kind of practical steps that you take on it at an operational level or even just like a meeting structure level that help you ingrain that and have it become as effective as, as it clearly is? Yeah, good question. You can't corporatize culture. Like culture is not, it's not something that's driven by a mission statement or a vision that's words. It's something that is, it's how you feel, isn't it? It's, it's an emotion. And uh, we've thought a lot about, about our culture and, and what does make it special. Like the tenure in our company is incredible. And watching people go through Hardest and come to the end of Hardest and then start their journey with us, it's very exciting and everyone buys into that. Personally, I think there's two things that drive outstanding culture in the tourism and hospitality space particularly, but I think the same is true for any organisation. It's a sense of purpose that you're doing something that makes a difference, whether it makes a difference in the, the day of your colleague, whether it makes a difference to the day of your guest. Like I, I've seen interactions with our team members change someone else's life. It's deep and it is impactful enough. I've got no doubt that some of those interactions are talked around, talked about around dinner tables for years and decades to come, that moment, that person did this and made me feel this way or alter my life in this way, that happens. And that's a very powerful thing. And I think hoteliers underestimate the ability they have to impact someone's life that way. And, and when you appreciate that, that's a very big responsibility, but it's also a very big opportunity. So sense of purpose is very important. And then inspirational leadership. Like the leaders need to walk the, they need to walk the talk. They can't be out, and and we're all held to a very high standard. We can't do or say anything that undermines the environment that we're trying to create, and that's very important. And I think we've seen through COVID there, there's absolutely now this high degree of trust that exists between leaders in the business. In fact, the. The, the traditional hotel hierarchy now, I think, is no more. Very flat structures with lots of people doing lots of different things and doing it for each other. And the trust that that builds is is quite phenomenal. And I, I, I'm, we're not in a hurry to push the hierarchy back. The hotels work better this way. The closer you can put the leaders in the business to the guest and the closer you can put the leaders in the business to our front line, the better. And it builds trust and it actually also then enables those leaders to lead in a way that is inspirational. The last two years, two and a half years, have been hugely inspirational. And, uh, yeah, hats off. Hats off to everyone. And that's not just ACL. That's the industry. Uh, I do think that we've got something really special and I think it's based on, yes, it's based on hardest and it's based on those principles. It's based on purpose and it's based on the the wonderful leaders we have in our business speaking of wonderful leaders like can we hone in on you yourself in terms of your own personal story and and your leadership style because i'm conscious that we've talked about accor and which is obviously a big part of it but in the moments of turmoil and I, i'm just saying image in my mind is this pie you put up on the the weekly call once at dnsw <laughs> 
<laughs> so for listeners, uh, uh, Steve Cox, who's the CEO of Destination New South Wales, has been running a sort of weekly fortnight league uh, industry get-together, which grew from, I don't know, 12 people initially to, I don't know, there's hundreds on it now. Such a good ritual. But in the middle of uh, some dark days, Scott Scott does a presentation and uh, <laughs> there's this enormous pie, pie as part of it. And I just remember thinking when I saw it that not everyone had that perspective, like self-included really. Like I think that in the rough and tumble of relief and who knows what was going on, but there you were with this narrative which sure i can say that's a core i could say you know it, it, it takes leaders uh, to to kind of have that presence like i think i'd really just like to know your own journey into um you know the industry but what you bring to it yourself and and how much of yeah that you know can we can we sort of learn from and leverage really oh well thank you i mean that's 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 very kind and i i don't think that i mean for so just for context that picture of pie was was talking about, and it was a massive pie. Like, it, 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 actually, I googled biggest pie in the world um, to try and find the, the biggest pie in the world, and it had this. Um, and I, I don't want to go down the road of stereotyping, but it had this, um, this, this big oven in the middle of the country, and this uh, baker that was um, making this pie, and it was huge. And I just wanted, I, I wanted to get the message across that this is an opportunity for us all because we've got nothing to lose to come together and grow the pie and. Uh, we'll all get a bigger slice. And then I had to try and find the world's biggest slice of pie. To, <laughs> to further. Anyway, uh, it, 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 um, the pictures weren't great, but the message was it, it did resonate. I don't think I'm any different to anyone else, Michael. I, I, I'm optimistic by nature. So I do generally see the good in people and I see the good in things. Those calls that Steve runs, I do think, are, are an incredible asset to us all. And they do provide an opportunity that I'd hate to see go to waste. So, you know, the phrase that we've heard from Winston Churchill over and over again in the last two years, never let a good crisis go to waste. And I genuinely believe that. And we we do have an opportunity to to come together now and reshape this industry. I, I didn't say this in the last answer around the, the Australian hospitality industry particularly, but I think this is the same for the broader tourism sector. I can't think of a part of the world that has had a bigger impact in the current day tourism landscape in Australia. If I think about the global leaders of hotel companies, uh, Accor included, and the tourism leaders all around the world in terms of around the globe in terms of airlines and cruise ships and general tourism, a lot of them have cut their teeth here or spent time here or grown and developed here or are expat Aussies going and applying their trade around the globe. The industry itself has got this unique ability to take people that love, that just love looking after people, that have this, the Australian service culture is, I think, the best in the world. Like we're not, we don't take ourselves too seriously. We're genuine. We want to do a good job. We want to care for people. We understand the concept of family. We're innovative. We're commercial. And it's no surprise that now there are these global leaders that have at some point in time spent their time plying their trade here. I think we've got to talk about that more. And my colleagues all feel the same way. We've got to start to understand what is the DNA that makes this special. And we've got to come together on that and tell that story more and, and not be this humble sort of part of the world that always has this inferiority complex. The world is there for us to take. And I, and I think we can come together and, and do it. I haven't really answered the question. I'm sorry, but I, I, I don't think my I don't think my view was any it's any more unique than than anyone else's. I just think we've we've now got to get to a point where we can start to bring these these great minds together and start to to, to get some traction. I think you're entering into that storytelling about you know the the Australian hospitality genome and something you and I've talked about. Luke and I've talked about it. As you said, the podcast has originated from that that ambition to inspire people to come into the industry. But your own story then, you've been at Accor for some time. <laughs> how did you How did you make your start? Uh, well, I, uh, I grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney. I, I've got wonderful parents that really believed in, in uh, a great education. They worked very, very hard to try and give me the ac- access to the best possible education and, and extracurricular activities and having two kids myself now and trying to 
to chart the same journey. I've, I've got an ever-growing uh, appreciation for my parents and what they did for me. But the reality was I wasn't overly academic. I, I just enjoyed playing rugby and loved my loved my Saturdays and loved my training and my mates and, and playing footy. And I wasn't overly focused on a career, which much to the horror of my parents did concern them greatly. And and uh, I started working at McDonald's as soon as I was 15 and nine months. And and I really enjoyed that as well. And and then one day I must have been in, maybe it was the end of year 10. And I sort of was, and this is the early 90s, end of year 10. I still remember I was sitting having my wheat bix in the morning with my Milo. And my mum came with a, a full page spread of the Sydney Morning Herald. And for those of you in the pre-digital age, the Sydney Morning Herald used to be this massive newspaper. And she uh, she put it down in front of me, and and it said it said uh, hotel careers, no HSC required. I said, Mum, I'm in, and uh, that that's me. I'm going to be a hotelier. I didn't really see the first bit about the the hotel careers. I just saw no HSC required, and at that stage, I was tossing up a career in the military or something else. And that was an ad for the Blue Mountains Hotel School. And uh, Mike, you and I sit on an advisory board for that school now, and that's a great pleasure of mine a couple of times a year getting together and and talking about that institution because that institution changed my life and uh, I started at the Blue Mountains school and I, I don't know what happened but I just flipped um, like literally just flipped and uh, I loved it it's a fully immersive hotel experience and I studied really hard and the Alex Hotel in Luro is an institution for anyone who's listened to this podcast that went to the Blue Mountains Hotel school you know on Thursday night you go to the Alex it's almost part of the timetable and I uh, stopped going to the Alex and I just studied hard, studied hard, studied hard. And yeah, I loved it. And I haven't looked back ever since. And I'm fortunate enough to, to duck that course. I ducked every year. I ducked the, the course. And I mean, I, I still don't know how that happened. And then I started with Accor in 1994. And I haven't looked back. This company has been amazing for me and just continually provides opportunities. And I've traveled around the country. I've traveled to Japan. I've traveled to New Zealand. And I've been fortunate enough to go to Morocco and Paris and, and I've worked in every state in the country. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a remarkable journey. And, and now here I am. I've got the best job in the world. I, I get to talk about hotels all day and meet the most amazing business partners and have conversations like this. So thank you. And just for insight for people listening, obviously, your current patch, how many hotels, how many colleagues you have, um, what's, what's an average sort of week or month or year look like for you? 50-odd hotels led by 50 great GMs, just under 3,000 team members in that in that patch. And oh, every day is different. Every week is different. Every year is different. <laughs> it, it does feel like we've been on a bit of a uh, groundhog day recently, but it's still different. There's still things that happen that are good and there's things that happen that provide challenges and opportunities. Look, a general day for me is... Uh, I'll get. I, I like getting up early. I like. I like getting active. I like uh, planning my day. I am pretty. Like I. I. I like to be organised. Uh, my inbox does cause me huge degrees of stress and anxiety if it gets out of control. I like knowing what's in there. I like knowing uh, that I've got it in some kind of order. So I tend to focus the start and the end of the day on on that. Either getting ready for the day or tidying up the day and, and setting myself for tomorrow. The best part of the day is really around meetings and, and making sure everyone gets from me and from us what they need. That's I'm really a conduit. So I'm really a conduit between uh, our partners and the hotels to make sure that our interests are aligned and, and that we're doing, we're doing all the things that we need to be doing for our partners. And then my role is a conduit between hotels and the management company, Accor, to make sure that the hotels have got access to the best possible tools to get the best possible outcomes. That that might be outcomes either commercially for an owner or a partner. It might be an outcome for our guests in terms of product and service, or it might be a, an outcome for our team members in terms of driving their own careers with us. So that's my role. I'm kind of the connector and I kind of bring people together and, and make sure that everything flows and there's no blockages to make sure that everyone has access to what they need to have access to. I think I know what your answer is going to be to this, but we talk about operating at scale, I guess, fairly frequently on this. We've had some people on that, you know, guests of the show who have operated at significant scale, which you obviously do. What would be the key to your ability to be effective doing what you do? 
I'm sure everyone's giving you the same answer. It's it's the people you have around you. Great hotels have great GMs. Great hotels have great department head teams. And then it's no surprise that great hotels then have great team members. Like it is that simple and it's that complex all at the same mm. time. So I'm extremely lucky. I, I have I get to work with the most talented people, uh, whether that's in our corporate office, uh, whether that's our partners. Our partners are the best partners and to all the other hotel operators that are out there listening to this hands off, our, our partners are... <laughs> are off limits they are they are amazing people to work with and i still pinch myself that i sit in these rooms with these great people talking about this business and every day i learn something from those people so i'm very fortunate we've got great great gms the best in the business and once again please hands off and then we've got these great department head teams and great great team members and then we've got the best guests in the world as well and and the best loyalty program so very very lucky but it's it's all about the quality of people you get to work with yeah uh, even even in covid like in the absolute depths, which was around Easter 2020, you know, that sort of March-April period was absolutely, they were dark, dark days. And we were having conference calls like this on, on, a, on a Zoom or a, a Teams meeting. I think we were at, we were at the stage of doing twice daily because it was moving so fast. And you just look at the screen and see these faces and you just go, wow, we're okay. We'll get through this because, I mean, look at this. How, how can you not? Yeah, it's, it's all about people, Luke. It's the quality of people. It's a, it's a, this is exceptionally anecdotal. I'm going to 100% agree with you, but the hotel sector is one that sits in isolation, I think, to any of the, any others that we deal with in that, you know, when you are working on a, on a role within an accommodation property, it's very common that you need to discuss the general manager that works there because it's just such viewed with such importance, you know, the environment into which you're going into, you know, in contrast to, say, a restaurant or a pub hotel for example it's not necessarily part of the conversation but in in hotels it's obviously so important because of the the critical nature of the role that they play within the organization and the, and the leadership and and mentoring that they can provide and you're 100 right you guys have um the best in the business i think you can feel a hotel when you walk into a lobby you know whether a hotel is a good hotel by how you feel when you walk in the lobby and it, it's generally no surprise with how you feel in the lobby will reflect the personality of the leadership team Oh, I want to uh, change tack a bit, actually, if um, it's all right with uh, with you, gentlemen. I, I in terms of partners and uh, and investment into the sector, uh, and I guess like you know taking a, a step back and looking at the next few years, like what are you seeing and appetite for investment wise, and and I guess I'm asking partly because you, you know the impact of the of capital, you, you know, I think is something I don't often think about but you know because we're focused on other measures but i'd be curious to get your perspective on you know what you're seeing from uh, the investment sector into 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 leisure generally or hotel specifically well, i i think everyone understands that the COVID impact on trading is a moment in time the inherent characteristics of the asset class pre-covid and post-covid are still very very strong still, i mean still remarkably strong and the the sector was um, pre-COVID performing extremely well, and post-COVID I think will do better. If you think about what's happened now, revenue is going to come charging back. I mean, everyone just wants to get out, and it, we've seen that every time something something positive gets announced, or every time there's a, a a change that lets people do more, we see a spike, and we see a significant spike. Right now, uh, we are on track uh, in May, uh, uh, sorry, in March and April to really hit those expectations that we thought we were going to be hitting when we saw that uplift in November pre-Christmas. So it, it does come charging back extremely quickly. And Luke, you're going to be really, really busy because we're going to need lots of people to work in this sector as we go charging into the back half of the year. So I think the inherent and the ambient conditions for tourism assets are still very strong. And I think the investment community see that. So I don't see any real concerns there. The other, the other absolute silver lining, and it was forced upon us, is that we know how to run hotels better. We, we've, we've learnt how to run hotels with far less business and we've learnt how to run hotels with a degree of cost that, that we haven't had to do before. And I think hotel investors will benefit from that in the future. So if you put those two things together, Michael, uh, you put the ambient characteristics of demand 
and that's going to come charging back. And then the expertise that's been created out of necessity around driving profit um, with a very low revenue base, I, I think we're in for a, I'm a Steve Cox calls it the roaring 20s. I, I think we're in for a, a really exciting period. It's, it's, it's good to hear. And I think like in the uh, retail F&B space in, in Sydney, uh, there's similar characteristics. And I think that it's been exciting to see new product coming onto the market. Uh, and and it's only, it's driven by, it's driven by that. Uh, I think some of those same observations that you've had. And I think the exciting piece, and it goes back a little bit to what we were jostling with earlier around entrenching collaboration, because it's been a defence mechanism hasn't coming coming together and saying, well, how do we work through this together? From that, you've ended up with innovative responses um, or improvements in expertise, and, and and that's a function of sharing and recognising that if it's it's better if everyone's better, cliche as that sounds. So, I'm I'm really excited by the potential to drive an innovation agenda for, for Australia, but you know, Sydney, New South Wales, where, where I'm housed, like you know, coming out the other side. So looking at things, and I want to ask Luke a question, if, uh, which is slightly odd because, you know, this staffing thing is uh, the, the topics one, two and three mostly at meetings um, for many of us. But, you, you know, the, the framework uh, capability of the hotel sector in particular, the, the accommodation hotel sector in particular, because of the capital allocation uh, is, I think, a, a kind of sector-wide advantage um, that other uh, areas won't have. And by that I mean, because of the uh, the appetite and the capital values, you know, the investment in people um, that the hotel sector can uh, and will inevitably lead, uh, will have a knock-on effect into you know the small medium enterprise end as people kind of uh, you know go through a system. That's a bit of a speculative comment, but that's one of the things that I, I'm thinking about. Look, in terms of your world at the moment, and you know, sector skill shortages well understood. In this sector, but it's also a challenge a- across um, the economy. Um, with you know, I think uh, New South Wales almost in full employment, based on uh, what I, uh, my understanding of what that means. But are, are you um, and, and partly it's other sectors are, are you know are larger now and um, growing uh, out of the pandemic. Like, are you able to give us an update on how you're going filling multiple roles and particularly which sectors you're stealing people from? It's tough. It's really really tough. There's no, I think I've said it before, but there's no, you know, in what we do, there's no hidden pool of talent that we have access to that, that employers don't, you know, we're, we're all speaking to the same people in some respects. Obviously the time that it takes to build different networks in different areas is, is probably where we add the value and the, and the um, freedom to, to focus solely on finding talent as opposed to running a business and finding talent. But yeah, look, I, I, unfortunately, and I hate to sound negative, but I think it's going to get a fair bit worse before it gets better. And that, I think Scott will probably talk to this better than I, but with hotels, as he said before, going to a period of where they're forecasting some pretty strong revenue and and, um, visitation, you know, hotel F&B will start opening up in more comprehensive manner than it is right now. Conferencing will start picking up and and, and they're quite labour-intensive pursuits within hotels and accommodation settings. I mean, if you look at having an, an AHIS event, for example, and then dinners or even um, HM awards, for example, how many people are in that room? How many people does it take to service them? Those kind of events have been happening sporadically, but when the sector comes back to life en masse, I genuinely do not know where those people are going to come from. If you're talking at the frontline level and even your back of house culinary roles, it's going to be very challenging to get to full manning. I think from my perspective, and again, Scott will will um, provide better insight, I'm sure. But I th- even in the, the, the roles that were a challenge pre-COVID is still a challenge. It's just that, you know, if you look at your front office kind of roles, getting a full front office team can be quite challenging for a lot of properties. But even, you know, I think the challenges around more senior level roles, particularly around F&B, even in, in rooms, um, director of operations, EAM, RDM, those kind of positions can be quite challenging for businesses to fill at the moment. And it's just because of the volume 
it's the supply and demand issue. Like effectively what it is, I know everyone knows that it's very obviously that's, that that's the issue, but the number of people needing to enter the sector and enter, I think the country, because I don't think it's a domestic talent issue really. I think the numbers are quite staggering. So yeah, I don't know what you, how, how are you seeing that, Scott? Yeah, it's probably a couple of things sort of tied into one. Personally, and um, from a from an ACOR perspective, I'm I'm very proud of how we've been able to keep our teams engaged and on board. So I do feel we're at the starting line with a, in a reasonably good spot that we've got a a group of team members that are engaged. As I talked about before, we've we've got this trusting relationship and. We've been able to get a lot of team members through to this point and they've wanted to come through with us to this point, which which is great. Uh, and I think we've got the base on which to build. It then goes back to that whole value proposition of the hospitality industry that I think we've got to be really clear on. You know, I don't, I, I, if we're just going out and recruiting people to, to do a job for us now, I'm, I'm not sure in the long term it actually solves the, the issue. I think we've got to draw the... We've got, to, we've got to really be deliberate about creating this compelling hospitality story that helps institutions like the Blue Mountains Hotel School and the other great hotel schools that are out there to be able to go and talk about the industry. And that, that does then talk to that story of the great global hoteliers and their, their time in Australia, you know, and whether they grew up in Australia and cut their teeth in Australia. And here's these great leaders that have that have forged this amazing career and travelled to all these wonderful places and running these outstanding hotels, and and they started in the same place you did. And I think I think if we can get that story right, then the pathways start to become a little bit clearer. You know, it helps Blue Mountains and the other great hotel schools and universities access kids that are leaving school and pathway into tertiary education, and that funnel starts to fill up it helps the immigration story and the visas to come out here and work in this great industry it helps uh it helps people that are thinking about transitioning careers and and moving from one industry to another there's not too many industries that you can start from the ground up and end up running a a company somewhere in the world like hospitality is one of those and my own story included i i started working as a night porter cleaning brass and not and cleaning toilets basically and you know, 28 years on, here we are. I think it's about it's about us doing the, the legwork on on what makes the industry a great one and, and why you should work in it uh, and then telling that story more broadly with all the partners that we have to start to fill up some of these, these funnels that will then give us all benefit. If we all just start competing with each other on what makes each company great, we'll, we'll, have, we'll have success, yes, but it'll be limited unless we can fix this systemic issue and the image problem the industry has. That's not really of our, our doing, mind you. Like It's just circumstance. If we can fix that image problem, we'll, we'll have far better success, I think. I um, And again, I don't want to insult the listenership. I think people have, through the pandemic, increasingly worked out the, the multifaceted nature of trying to solve this problem. And it, it started with a very, oh, we, this is, we need to do this one thing and away we go. And now it's like, actually, there's about these all these aspects to think about and just seizing on one example it's this the international students solution so to speak is off-sighted but through the lens that i can see and i'm not talking about students working in hospitality schools i'm talking about um students that are uh, you know doing other education but have been a source of employment for the sector one of the opportunities is that the because of the some of the pressures on the university model that's been running for a while that universities are having to think about how they engage with their own student populations in a way that perhaps you know that the pandemic's forced them to just because of the, this change in that market and then it's sort of creating some reflection on well what is the actual what is the actual international student experience in a place like sydney or melbourne like you know not what do we what do we want to tell us as it is what is it actually like it's um amazing the 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 um the gap between the marketing brochures and uh you know anecdotal response from students um particularly coming out of Asia. And so, you know, one of the opportunities that I'm sort of got a toe in the water on is, uh, I guess, playing some sort of ambassadorial role into, um, you know, Sydney-based unis largely to extend that warm hug, that warm Australian hug that you've talked about, um, Scott, but also having it sort of stack up in the lived experience of the students. It's very, it's, it, there's, a, there's a job to be done around that. That isn't going to solve the problem, by the way. I'm just saying it's one part of, like, you know, what needs to be a multi multifaceted multifaceted approach and so it's it's good to 
you know, I think you're right. Like just even understanding that this is a, you know, a medium to long-term thing and it goes fundamentally back to why I think, you know, I, I'm so keen to maintain this collaborative approach because unless you do that, you, you, it'll, like our ability to do that will directly impact um, the short to medium, uh, sorry, the medium to, to long-term employment capability, uh, sorry, attractiveness of the sector. That's my opinion. The other thing too, and I, I did want to talk to you about this anyway, that tourism can be part of the solution here and, and hospitality can be part of the solution to many problems, not the least of which is employment jobs and, and to a lesser extent, but equally important, as you touched on, Luke, immigration. So yesterday uh, in the press, a thousand visas issued out of for people fleeing the Ukraine, the terrible situation in the Ukraine. How wonderful would it be if we said, okay, for those, and, and we had some kind of way to communicate through the private sector, through government, to the uh, immigration process to say, right, for those thousand people, anyone who wants a job in this sector, uh, we've got a job, and then create a platform to make that that happen. And, and I know that that sounds very simplistic and very easy, but uh, number one, I think it does show the industry can solve some fairly complex issues when it comes to people assimilating into the country. We appreciate foreign cultures and awareness, and we have a, an awareness around uh, looking after visitors from overseas countries, and these these visitors are going to have needs that I think we can help with, with that warm Australian hug like you so articulately pointed out, Michael. I think we um, we provide really great places of safety. Um, our, our, our hotels are safe places. We we have open arms for everybody, um, no matter what your background is or uh, where you're heading. We, we can provide an environment that provides safety for everyone. I, I think we've got a really compelling story to tell and a solution to provide. We just haven't got the dots joined up. And it'd be great to be able to join some of those dots so that we go, right, we've got a solution for government. We're going to, we can provide employment. We can provide help and access to assimilation agencies to help people settle in a, in a location and, and assimilate with the community. Uh, we can provide pathways then to careers. And we're going to do this all in a very culturally sensitive and appreciative environment. Yeah, I think there's lots of opportunity for us. And in doing so, we're serving a group of people that need to be served. That's what we love to do. I think um, this may seem a little tenuous, but Mike, you're probably a good bridge because I think this is not just a problem that maybe maybe it can be, maybe it can't be, but um, it'll be a problem easier solved if there was more broad interaction between not only the accommodation sector, but on-premise hospitality, you know, restaurants, bars, cafes, because I think there is a link from a from an employee's perspective to environments where you're serving food and beverage. How many people do you see go from more traditional on-premise, you know, non-accommodation food and beverage environments into accommodation environments? So I guess a more holistic collaboration between the different sectors would be would be advantageous because the experience that they get at one needs to there needs to be a level of consistency across them all, or one bad experience will tarnish for for, for the rest. Yeah, it's um like I think it's as as uh, Scott said, dot connection and and that that uh, issue and alignment piece again, kind of why I started the question with how do you hold on to this collaborative approach because we've managed to establish it now, keeping it together is where the opportunity lies and I guess I'm probably <laughs> I'm optimistic on certain things and I, and I get n nervous about other things you know depending on what the issue is and. Uh, and particularly when, um, from my particular vantage point, you can see discord in the industry um, uh, in the broadest possible context. So, you know, in the twenty-four hour, like you can see discord, and 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 then just you know, just the human condition through adversity with what we're experiencing at the moment. Like it, it's 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 almost like I think I'm having about seven goes at trying to get this across. I think that this is why, to me, um, and it's not just Scott. He's, he said that there's a lot of other people, but. It's having that lead leadership and just almost making that personal commitment to seeing it through all the meetings, all the roundtables, all the submissions, all the, you know, going, this is way too slow, way too complex and all the rest of it. But just kind of like I think an in principle commitment um, right at the outset to, you know, like that you we, we will see it through is, is kind of where I <laughs> I start. And then, uh, and then, you know, and I think from a government perspective and it, I've, I've lost track of the number of agencies and federal, it's, quite, it's a very complicated government issue, again, across multiple sectors as well, skill shortage more broadly. So sort of direction from um, my minister is 
the better you can do to get industry aligned on this, the easier it's going to be for government to come in and do its 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 component. And under our strategy, of course, we're going to try. We've set up a we've got a couple of governance structures, and Wes Lambert's now chairing a you know something a subcommittee on this for us. But it's the solution won't only come from there. Is my point? It, there needs to be sort of ten tables like that that you know are then dot connected in some in some way, no doubt. But um, I think it sort of has to start with the the overall commitment. Can I? Ask, I just wanted to ask one question. And this is quite operational in contrast to what we've been speaking about, but uh, it's a personal uh, of personal interest. In terms of operational changes to your model, in terms of at, at hotel level, do you see many um, changes, if any, that will remain long term as a result of the last couple of years? Yes, I mean to guest guest experience primarily is kind of where I'm coming from. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, there's no doubt that cleanliness has a much uh, lower tolerance to any kind of issues when it comes to cleaning. So I think about dust, right? Dust, <laughs> I think about dust, it sounds terrible. I think about dust a lot. Dust now becomes really a not negotiable in a hotel room. So cleaning is super important. That that will continue now forever, as does then the way that um, our teams move around a hotel, hotel rooms, and keep themselves and each other safe, very important. That's starting at the ground level. In terms of customer service, I I think our customers have got a, and rightfully so, a greater level of expectation now of us. You know, they've, they've waited two years to experience that special night away, that family break, that wedding anniversary, that that wedding. So there's a lot of emotion that goes with these things for the first time again. And, and we need to be very mindful of that and that expectation. So we, we're in this really weird transition phase now where we're still kind of managing health and safety, but then the stay of a lifetime and that's budding. And we, we need to get through that very quickly. We need to find a way to, to do the health and safety, but keep it in the background and still deliver on the stay of a lifetime. Automation, IT, apps, they're all playing a really interesting role. You know, or the ability to get real-time compendiums, menus, offerings, promotions on your device is really interesting and we're, we're deep in that space. Uh, I think the, the rise of Peloton and the home gym experience puts pressure on hotel gyms and, and wellness as a result becomes in the frame and we, we've got to become experts in that and delivering uh, high-quality content-led wellness offerings Food and beverage, you, you talked about the F&B and the retail F&B space and the hotel space. That that line is, going, is coming closer together. And as an industry, we're, we're absolutely committed to being experts in venue creation and really high-quality food and beverage offerings and curating this experience that perhaps we haven't done as well as we could have previously. We're very much on that journey now. And if I, you ask me about my day, Luke, a lot of my day is spent on on food and beverage and food and beverage venue creation, uh, concept, design and delivery and then, then the operation of, of food and beverage. We're probably talking about 10 different venues now all at once, which is really exciting and that's that's also providing different collaboration opportunities for us that we're really enjoying. So food and beverage is going to be really critical. It's all the stuff that you know. So food and beverage uh, and, and high-quality food and beverage and really great venue sitting in hotels, cleanliness, wellness, guest experience um, and tailorized guest experience. They're, they're going to be the things that will remain post-COVID. And, yeah, we're really committed to doing that and we're very excited about it. It's, it's actually where we want to be. We want to be in this space and we want to be talking about these things again and, and not talking about some of the stuff that, that we've been drawn into. Uh, we want to be back in this and, and everyone's really invested in that journey. It's good. It's very good. Well, I feel like it's been a very good morning, uh, notwithstanding the adversity, both uh, overseas, um, which we must remember, and um, and also locally with the floods. 
But uh, we might just jump into our final five so you can get to your, your next in, exciting F&B meeting, um, Scott, if that's what's up, coming up in your day. So, um, it is. Yes. <laughs> um, well, so um, he, we'll, we'll race through these. Um, the favourite favorite book uh, that you've recently read or podcast that you listen to? Well, your podcast is, is my favourite of all time, of course. But I really enjoyed Think Again by Adam Grant. It's an audio book. He, he reads it on the audio book. It's a, it's a great, easy read uh, talking about moments in time, that you, some of which you know about, some of which you wouldn't know about, where thinking completely left of centre changed the course of an outcome. It's a great story. Um, so, yeah, think again, Adam Grant, and this podcast. Actually, another podcast, I should point out another really great podcast right now because it does bring you right into the story is The Daily. It's a New York Times podcast. It's issued every day, but they've got reporters in the Ukraine that are interviewing everyday people, and those stories are terrifying, uplifting, emotional, uh, all at the same time. It's a it's a great um, journalistic piece that I think in years to come people will look back at that series of interviews and it'll, it'll capture a moment in time. So, yeah, The Daily, uh, New York Times, I... I think is a great podcast. Quality recommendations we like. On the music front, favourite album or artist right now or all, of all time? Uh, that's a, I, I love, uh, love my music and my kids draw me into the current day, so I don't want to go there too much. Oh, I'm, I'm really enjoying going back to Faith No More, um, Falling to Pieces, um, Epic, that era of Faith No More. Yeah, I must say, post workout, that's a uh, that's a that's an easy listen. I'd, I'd say it normally beats the um, soundtrack that I'm most listening to, which is Encanto. For those that are interested, Dos Oregitas, the the clear winner. Um, so, <laughs> Just on music, we we have this. Uh, we do a weekly uh, call with our with our GMs, and every every week a GM needs to nominate a song and then tell us why they nominated that song. It's incredible the eclectic mix of music you get, and and. The significance of music, like the, the ability of music to transform you back to a moment in time, and that's what we're hearing. You know, I heard this song when this happened in my life. Yeah, quite quite incredible. So Faith No More for me, that epic era is the end of my schooling years and uh, it does take me back to that and, and it's a, a time I reflect on very fondly. So, When you're listening to your favourite music, what's your favourite tipple? Uh, I'm pretty simple when it comes to beverage. Uh, I spent time in the Barossa Valley, uh, I ran our Novotel there and two wonderful years of my life and I've got great friends in the Barossa. And that, that hotel sits on Jacobs Creek, literally sits on Jacobs Creek. And the uh, fellow that came out from, from Germany that actually discovered the soil in the Barossa was suitable for grapevines actually sits on the real estate of that Novotel. So um, I, I, I don't think you can go by and the cooler weather coming on now, um, San Hugo, um, Shiraz, big bowl, Barossa Shiraz for, for what is it, $40, um, yeah. incredible value. So mm. um, San Hugo, it would be my tipple of choice. Very good. And uh, your favourite venue, motel, bar, restaurant, I mean, as you like. Uh, favourite venue, and this is going to offend a lot of people, but I am incredibly fond of the turnery at the Novotel Darling Harbour because that was the start of a food and beverage journey that has provided so many uh, opportunities and great moments. So uh, I do reflect on that uh, venue very fondly and I love it. And the team there is so committed. I think we've had that. We did work on that venue five years ago and it still remains very current. And the energy and excitement of that team is the same today as, uh, as it was back then. It's top... It's top 10 TripAdvisor restaurants in Sydney and, and for us it started our food and beverage journey, so that, that would be my favourite. Very good. And last, looking forward to this one, uh, who in the industry are you most inspired by? So this is an impossible one to answer to because if you say a name, you offend many. I'm inspired by, by great hoteliers, you know, Caesar Ritz and Caesar Ritz understanding that he could build great hotels by curating the furniture himself and and going at that attention to the detail of going and picking, hand-picking furniture to put in his first hotel and, and that degree of quality focus, that's inspiring. Conrad Hilton's commitment to service is inspiring. Our CEO, Sebastian Bazan, is inspiring. My colleagues uh, every day are inspiring. So 
Michael, if it's okay with you, I, I, I'm not going to answer that definitively by saying I think in their own way, everybody in our industry is inspiring. The, the way that our team members at the start of COVID rocked up on day one to provide a quarantine facility, not knowing where COVID was going, is inspiring. And then the way to do that two years later um, to the same level of service and trying to, to make the best of a, of a pretty crappy situation is inspiring. So right back at you, Michael. I, I think the industry is inspiring and I think everyone has a role to play and in their own way, they're inspiring. Very wise and insightful uh, words there, Scott. I've enjoyed this podcast, Luke. Anything you want to finish with? No, just thanks for your time. I know you're incredibly busy, but um, it's, uh, it's always good to chat. And um, yeah, just thank you for being generous with your time. So Scott Boys, Vice President Operations Accor, Ducks of Blue Mountains Hotel School and Ducks of the Alex <laughs> Hotel. Uh, we, 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 we don't forget that glory. Uh, we wish you um, all the best uh, for, for your time ahead. Thanks for being on the Back Pass podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. And great to do this with you. And I uh, felt like we were amongst friends. So thank you very much, Luke. Thank you, Michael. And take care, everybody. Stay safe. Keep walking forward and uh, eyes on the road. Thank you. Thanks, mate. Cheers. <laughs>